If you're new with us, uh, we have been marching very slowly through Matthew's gospel. And really, we have come now at the end of two years uh, to the end of Matthew. And so we're in Matthew 27, and the goal is is to be finished with Matthew in about three weeks' time. And then we're going to start the book of Proverbs uh, throughout the summer. And then coming back in the fall, we're going to do Ruth and Esther uh, together. And so um, my hope is, is that you'll join us for that. Throughout his entire gospel, Matthew's goal remains the same. To display Jesus as the long-awaited king. Now the point is fairly easy to spot when we read about Jesus' genealogy. When we read about his Solomon-like wisdom in the Sermon on the Mount. When we read about his healing ministry or his Joshua-like ability to drive out the demonic. But what about the trial before Pilate? Are there any indications of Jesus's royal nature and his status as he's being beaten, stripped, and mocked? Surely if there's anywhere in Matthew's gospel that Jesus's kingship is not clearly displayed, it would be these chapters. After all, how can we look at a man who's been humiliatingly stripped down to bear, beaten to an inch of his life, and mocked. How can that display the kingship of Christ? I think as we'll see, Matthew is careful in his depiction of what happened in Pilate's palace, the praetorium. His goal in this section is to show that everything from Pilate's interrogation, the release of Barabbas, and the soldier's violent mocking works to display something about Jesus's identity as the true king, as our king. So even in this section, even in this gory detail of Jesus' beating, we are going to walk out of this having seen Jesus as the royal son of David who reigns. You know, I think too often as Christians, we think of the cross and then the crown, right? We look at cross first and then the crown. As if Jesus' kingly authority is something that's only made known after his resurrection. But that's not the way that Matthew intends his readers to understand the cross. Instead, he wants us to see that Jesus is still the king, even at this moment when he is accused, rejected, and beaten. He's the king in the praetorium. He is the king on the cross, and he is the king displayed in full glory through the empty tomb. So it's not first the cross and then the crown. If anything, The cross displays the majesty of the crown. If anything, it is through the cross that Jesus reveals himself to be who he really is, the king on the cross. His suffering is not simply the means by which he wins the crown. Instead, his suffering displays to all the invisible crown that he is already wearing as the son of God. The the gory bloodshed of the praetorium is from a redemptive perspective, a bloody but beautiful coronation. Have you ever thought about that? That at this moment that Jesus is standing before the Roman soldiers, as Jesus is standing before Pilate, the man who has the most authority and power in all of Jerusalem, that at this moment, Jesus is even now being crowned as the king. 
That when they put the crown of thorns on, their, on his head, they acted better than they knew. My friends, I hope to change your perspective of the cross today. It's not cross and then crown. It's not cross and then king. It's the king through the cross, the king at the cross, the king in the cross, and the cross being a display of Jesus as king. As one scholar puts it, the cross is the apex of Jesus's kingdom mission. And the kingdom is the aim of the cross. One need not choose between the kingdom and the cross, for the cross is royal and the kingdom is cruciform. In other words, the kingdom is cross-shaped. We should read these events with our eyes open to see how Matthew displays Jesus as the king, even here. Bloody, yes. Humiliated, yes. Beaten, yes. Beaten to a pulp? Yes. But still the king who reigns forever. So I invite you as we survey this, that this text, as we look for these gospel gems that are hidden, that you will look for how Matthew is stirring up your adoration and affection for Jesus the king. Now first we come to Pilate. Just as a bit of a review, Jesus has endured an exhausting night of betrayal false accusations, charges of blasphemy, not to mention being spat in the face and needlessly beaten by his mockers. I mean, his best friend has come to the garden and taken him in the middle of the night. And now that he is being marched throughout Jerusalem and he finally comes to Pilate. Now, who is Pilate? You know, very little about Pilate other than Josephus wrote about him. The Bible writes about him. And there's a stone in Jerusalem, in uh, Israel that bears his name called the Pilate stone. But from what we can tell about Pilate, here's what we know. He was the Roman overlord over the entire Middle Eastern Empire to keep it in check. He was basically Caesar's crony who made sure that the people of Jerusalem wouldn't revolt and that the people of Israel would stay under subjugation. He was a ruthless man. He was a pagan man. If you mix a polytheistic, violent government, violent governor over a monotheistic Jewish society that has long, deep-rooted religious system, one of the things you're going to find is a Maccabean-type rebellion constantly. Riot after riot after riot after riot. As a Roman soldier, Pilate was not afraid to flex his military muscles. We know that riots were common, but so was Pilate's sword. There's one story in the Gospels, you can find it in Luke chapter 13, and you can find it in Josephus' Antiquities, in which Pilate listens to a group of Galileans who are complaining about the oppression, and his response is to slay them all and to mix their blood with their sacrifices. He had a reputation of being a very cruel governor. And it was Pilate's cruelty that eventually, after Jesus' death, leads to Pilate being deposed in Rome and actually being uh, condemned to suicidal execution. Caesar eventually tells Pilate to kill himself because he was so brutal in Jerusalem. Just painting that historical picture that Jesus stands before arguably one of the most violent men in Israel's history. He has no qualms about crucifying people. No qualms about slaying people. But in addition to him being one of the most violent men in Jerusalem's history, 
He's also one of the most pragmatic politicians. It's interesting. He, he, he takes on the, the form of a true politician of his day. He's unpredictable and flaky. One moment, he's ready to kill people. And the next moment, he's giving them whatever they want, releasing prisoners to make them happy, afraid of them being a, 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 becoming a riot. He's, he's, he's kind of this perfect, pragmatic, but violent politician. And he stands as a representation of the nations that throw off the bounds of God and his anointed one. He's a true rebel through and through. He will do whatever it takes to hold his power, whether it is kill or whether it is to give the people what they want. That's who Jesus stands in front of at this moment. Violent, flaky, pragmatic, unpredictable pilot. One whose acts even made Caesar's nose crinkle in disgust. And it's this pilot that asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, if I knew I was standing before that pilot, I think I'd be a little bit afraid to answer because to say yes means an immediate death sentence. To say yes, I'm the king of the Jews would mean an immediate condemnation because that is a threat to Pilate's power, even worse, a threat to Caesar's power. So Jesus has the chance right now to defend himself, to qualify everything he, he said and taught. He's got a chance to save his life from this violent pilot, and yet he answers straightforwardly. While Matthew's gospel jumps straight to the root of the accusation, Luke tells us how Pilate came to ask his question. How would Pilate know to ask Jesus? This is probably the first time he's met Jesus. So how does he know to ask the question, are you the king of the Jews? Or remember the night before that the Sanhedrin was looking for a reason for Jesus to be killed. And they think they found it under the claim of blasphemy. Jesus is claiming to be the Christ, which in their charges is worthy of death. It's blasphemy in their eyes. The Romans don't care about blasphemy. Who are the Romans who are poly polytheistic? Who, who are they to care about what the Jews think is blasphemy? So the, the Jewish leaders have to find a reason of their own. Why does Jesus deserve to die? They changed the accusation. It was because we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. You hear how the, the charges have changed? It began with the charges of blasphemy, that he claims to be the son of God, the Christ, the one who rides on the clouds and to whom all authority and dominion is given. They come to Pilate. They know what Pilate wants. Pilate wants a pragmatic answer. Why does Jesus deserve to die? Because he told us not to pay taxes. Because he claims to be a king. And he threatens Caesar's sovereignty. I think it's worth seeing that when Pilate asks the question, are you the king of the Jews? That his entire motivation is politically backed. He's sizing Jesus up, essentially. Is this a man who's going to start an insurrection? Is this a man who's going to subvert the Roman rule? Well, subversion will be answered with death. 
But apparently Pilate doesn't see Jesus in that light because later on he declares him innocent, even knowing Jesus answers, yes, you have said so. In other words, you have said I'm a king. Yes, that's true. Jesus affirms that he's the king, but his answer is qualified. He is a king, just not in the way that Pilate means it. Pilate wants to know whether Jesus is setting himself up as a political rival. Pilate wants to know if he's a pragmatist like him. Pilate wants to know how many swords Jesus is amounting for a a, a massive overthrow. But that is not the kind of king that Jesus is. And that is not the kingship that Jesus is establishing here. You see, these people come to Jesus and they try Jesus based on their own understanding They're all pragmatists, just trying to figure out who is Jesus, what is he trying to do? And none of them get the point that he is the king who has come to die. What kind of king does that? I mean, this just flips our understanding of kingship upside down. For us Americans, we tend to think of King George, right? Who just cares about taxing people. Or we might think of Caesar, or we might think of, I don't know, some other emperor, This isn't Jesus. Jesus has come to die and his kingship is founded and established and displayed through his death. All they care about is what Jesus is coming to build politically. It's out of that political concern that the Pharisees are moved to envy Jesus' power. They just don't see it. Pilate and the Jewish leaders may be pragmatists who are concerned only with their political agenda, but Jesus is not. He is the king who who has no need to politically maneuver himself out of harm's way. He doesn't bat an eye before Pilate. He's not scared of Pilate. He's not scared of the accusations. He's not trying to save his own skin He's not taking on this duplicitous nature where he says one thing out of one side of his mouth and says another. No, he says nothing in front of these men. Jesus walks the path that God designed long ago. The only words we hear at Jesus' trial before Pilate is a question from Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is subtle and simple, yes. And then nothing more. I think there's some rich majesty in his silence here. Some of the best theology comes in the quiet spaces of the Bible when people say nothing, right? When, when Job finally sees God, like he's asked and he's just silent, there's a lot of theology in that. When Jesus stands before Pilate gets the question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, yes. And then says nothing else. There's a lot of theology in that. As Jesus is listening, as Jesus is standing there, the accusations are coming. You can just imagine the chaos of these political leaders. He told us we shouldn't pay taxes. He threatened to destroy the temple. He told us that uh, uh, Caesar's not king. He's claiming kingship for himself. And all these accusations coming one by one like a Gatlin gun. Pilate finally says, do you not hear how many things they're saying about you? Are you hearing what they're saying? All these things are condemnable. Matthew's careful to record, but he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. 
So much so that the governor was greatly amazed, astounded, awestruck. Pilate's never seen anything like this before. You know, about this time, Pilate's probably getting letters from Rome asking for answers for why he responded to the riots the way he did, asking for answers why there's a delegation of Jews that have come to accuse him of uh, cruel and unjust punishment. He understands what it's like to be in the hot seat before a king. He's sending delegation back to Caesar explaining, you don't understand these people. They're hard to rule. So he's defending himself currently at this moment, most likely in history. He is defending himself, trying to get himself out of hot water. How is it that Jesus doesn't care? How is it that Jesus doesn't defend himself? What kind of king makes no defense when his enemies seek his life? What kind of king remains silent when inflammatory accusations are lobbed against him? My friends, we don't even know what this is like in our day and age. What politician has a Twitter page that remains silent when somebody tweets about him? What kind of politician doesn't hire a commercial break to answer all the accusations that the last commercial break gave? Jesus is not that kind of king. He's not that kind of leader. He's not out to protect his political image. Little did Pilate know that what he was watching was God's sovereign plan unfolding before his very eyes. Jesus is the long-awaited king of the Jews. And his silent suffering proves it. How so? Hundreds of years, more like 800 years, before this famous trial, the prophet Isaiah wrote... He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Pilate is begging. Pilate is teeing Jesus up. Give a defense. Pilate believes Jesus is innocent. Pilate has every reason to let Jesus go. Jesus need merely give a small defense to secure his own release. He stays silent. Why? Because he knew that in his silence, he would die for you. He could open his mouth and save himself, but in saving himself, you'd be condemned. He opened not his mouth. You know, we see a bloody Jesus here who's got black eyes and pulled out beard, probably blood trickling down the side of his mouth. He looks ragged. He's been up for several hours, been punched unfairly, spat on. He's dirty, probably. And yet in all this silence, we see him in his true regality. We see him as the royal son of David, as he really is. Because it is in his silence that he is resolved to save sinful people like us. I love the way Jonathan Edwards put it. You know, we, we accept Jesus as the Lion of Judah. He's the king. He's royalty. And yet he's also the Lamb of God. How do those two things go together? Jonathan Edwards answers it this way. In nothing has Christ appeared so much as a lion, in glorious strength, destroying his enemies, as when he was brought as a lamb led to the slaughter. You want to see the Lion of Judah, you must see the Lamb of God. 
In Revelation, it's beautiful. All the crowds of heaven, silence before the Lion of Judah. And John turns his head and he sees a lamb that had been slain. We expect to see a lion when they say, behold, the Lion of Judah. What do we see instead? A lamb. It was slain. My friends, this isn't just a mere history lesson. It's not just a neat little trick that Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53 by not answering his charges. You know, if he would have opened his mouth, defended himself like we are all prone to do. Even when our lives are not on the line, just the slightest accusation drives some kind of defense from us, doesn't it? I mean, I can't get so by as, as walking by the sink without giving defense for why I haven't done my chores that week. Why I haven't done the dishes, even without an accusation, ready to defend myself. And yet Jesus, with it all on the line, standing before the most violent man in history who would kill him and not even think twice about it, standing before these unjust, unfair, lying Jerusalem leaders, he opened not his mouth. That's the love of God. And it takes a king like that to save sinners like us. So as we see Jesus standing before Pilate, we don't just see some bloody slave-like condemned criminal. We see the royal son of God who is the silent suffering servant through whose wounds we are healed. Now, after Pilate realizes that Jesus will not defend himself against the accusations, he gives the crowd a choice. Pilate's a violent man, but it does seem that at least at this moment in history, he has somewhat of a conscience. He doesn't want to condemn Jesus unless he can find proof that Jesus is guilty. Okay? So he, like a true pragmatist, decides that he wants to win the people's favor while at the same time retain a good conscience. Doesn't always work, does it? So what he does is, as he's done in Passover's past, offers amnesty to one prisoner of the people's choice. They can just say, it doesn't matter what the prisoner did. doesn't matter what he's on the line for. They pick him. He releases him. So he gives them a choice this year. They can choose Barabbas, who in the Greek is known as a famous prisoner. He's a notorious prisoner, meaning that everybody knew he was guilty. He was a famous criminal. We don't know what he did, but to be on the block like he was, it was probably something like murder. It's most likely that Barabbas wasn't in jail because he stole some bread. I mean, we're talking about maybe a big insurrection. Maybe he tried to assassinate a Roman officer. Whatever it was, this guy is in deep, deep hot water because he did something deeply crazy. He's a notorious criminal. Everyone knows he's guilty. But then you come to Jesus. That's the other side of the choice. And twice Jesus is called as the righteous man. The Christ. And so we we, we pit these two things. We got the notorious, everybody knows he's guilty, criminal. And the righteous one. Pilate knows it's out of envy that the righteous one is there. He's not there because he did something wrong. 
It says that in Matthew's gospel, that Pilate knows there's no charges that are sticking here. There's nothing really that anybody can knock on and point to and say, yes, look, he did this, and this is why he must die. He knows it's completely out of their jealousy for Jesus. It's not fair to kill someone because you're jealous of them. The other man deserves to die. So in Peter's mind, he's thinking, surely the crowd is going to condemn the known guilty prisoner and let the righteous one go. The one who doesn't deserve to die. I mean, this is, this is almost like saying, do you want a beef jerky stick or do you want a 12 ounce steak? You, see, you essentially see the choice that's being made here. And the choice that they make shows what's in their heart. They are so willing to pervert justice that they will have righteous and innocent Jesus killed. In order to get their own envious desires. In order to get him removed out of the way. One of these men stood condemned for his own guilt. The other condemned simply because they hated him. One deserved to die. The other did not. Now, that's a bad story. It's an unjust story. It's something that kind of stirs up emotional anger inside of us. How could they do that? And yet at the same time, it shows us something redemptive. On the one hand, this whole event shows the obstinate rejection of the crowd. They hate Jesus so much that they're going to pick the one who is guilty over the one who is righteous. And yet on the other hand, it's a perfect illustration of what Jesus had come to do. Barabbas deserved his cross, but the cross was laid on Jesus instead. We don't know what happened to Barabbas. I'm in no way saying that Barabbas actually became a Christian after all this. There's people who've gone that far. I don't know. I don't know what happened to Barabbas after all this. But I do find it interesting that a man who deserved his cross and who was guilty is substituted by a man who is righteous. What a perfect picture of what Jesus had come to do. This image of a righteous man standing in the place of a guilty man. The, the image of Barabbas' cross being brought to Jesus and that a righteous man takes on the claim, takes on the crowd's cries for let him be crucified. Pilate asked openly, why? What has he done? The crowds can't answer. Let him be crucified. He is innocent but he takes the place of a guilty criminal. My friends, if you take anything away from this passage, take away this. Jesus is the king who substituted himself for you. In your place, condemned he stood. Your cross, that was your death. That was your cup of wrath that you deserved to drink because it was your sins that you committed that earned the wrath of God, and yet Christ as the royal king substitutes himself. Do we hear the heart of the gospel here? The heart of the gospel isn't that we believe in a good man. The heart of the gospel isn't that we believe that Jesus was a good teacher. The heart of the gospel is that we believe the son of God took on flesh to take our place. He took our death so that we could have his life. He was outcast so we could be brought in. He was the one that said, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, so that we could say, God, my father. That beautiful substitution. 
My friends, we just kind of let it fall flat on our ears and we tend to be dead people, but yet that's meant to stir up the fires of affection that somebody stood in your place. Barabbas shows us what that's like. Shows the obstinacy of our rebellion, yes, but it also shows that Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice. He died instead of us. He died on behalf of us. He died for the sake of us. And whatever prepositional phrase you want to put in there, it was all for the glory of God and for your salvation. Barabbas is released. Pilate can't believe it. These people are really going to choose a guilty criminal over the righteous one. But he does it anyway. He washes his hands, hoping that that means that he's not going to take the blame for it. And yet, ironically, for the rest of history, we read that it was Pilate who handed them over. Because you can't wash your hands off of something that is right. He condemned Jesus. And he bears the blame, along with the crowds, along with the people. He hands him over to his soldiers where Jesus is scourged before his crucifixion. Now, Matthew's original audience didn't need any explanation of what scourging meant. It was self-explanatory. They saw the word. That's what it meant. But for us, I think it helps because we are so distant from that. When I say scourge, most people don't understand what that means. Scourging was a form of torture in which the victim would be beaten to a pulp, literally to, to ribbons. There would be a whip with lashes of embedded metal or bone in it. And it would come down. Now you've heard the, uh, what was it? The 40 minus one or the 39 minus one. That wasn't a thing. That, that, that is a false uh, uh, thought, historical fact that people tend to think that Jesus was only beaten. The Romans don't care how many times they beat you. The Jews at least had a law that they could beat you up to so many strikes and then they have to let you go. Romans don't care. There is historical record that many people that made it to the praetorium to be beaten never walked out again. You'd be lucky just to even survive this. They relished in it. This just shows the the bloodthirsty. Oftentimes the victim just sat there and died on the floor just from the sheer pain and shock of being beaten. It was a punishment given to the most reprehensible of criminals. I mean, seriously, those that were going to bring damage to life, damage to the government, damage to the city, it was for those kinds of people. And you think about Jesus taking on the worst kind of punishment, reserved for the worst kind of people. And he took that on himself. Perfectly innocent victim atrociously tortured. And yet that's exactly what the prophet said must happen. Isaiah 50 verses five through six, for example, says this, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. We're talking about the most perfect man, the one who has done nothing, no sin, not so much as even a lustful thought. And he gives up his back for this kind of pain. 
And you add to it Isaiah 53, and you find out that it's by those stripes, by those wounds, by those lashes, by that exposed muscle, by the bleeding on the floor, that it is by that that you were made well. That you were brought to God, that you were made righteous. My friends, we Christians have an unashamedly bloody gospel because it was by precious blood, innocent blood, that our guilty blood was spared. So they beat him. We don't know if Jesus could walk at this point. He could hardly walk. We know that by the time he gets to the cross, he can't bear the cross much. So he's weakened, bleeding, and then they bring the whole battalion, which is about 600 soldiers all together, and they mock him. This is typical for condemned crucifixion victims. The the soldiers would have their time. It was basically a time of handing over this prisoner, and then the officers would turn their back and let the prisoners do whatever they wanted to this man. I mean, after all, he's he's a dead man walking. This is their chance to have a little fun. So that's what they're doing. They're having a little fun with Jesus. They hear that he's on charges of being a king, that he's claimed to be the king of the Jews. So in order to have a little fun, let's treat him like a king. So they strip him down. Yes, that means he's naked in front of these 600 men. Shamefully exposed. Mocked and taunted. You can hear the laughs. They put on him a Roman cape, one of those, uh, those, those maroon little capes and call it a royal robe for him. And then they twist together a crown of thorns and they place it on his head. Now, the, the, the whole purpose in that is to humiliate him and to bring as much pain before the cross as possible. They take the reed, they place it in his hand, they all fake bow down before him saying, Hail to the king of the Jews. Then they take the reed and they beat him in the head with it. Where the crown of thorns is sitting, driving those thorns deeper and deeper and deeper. How in the world does a story like that display Jesus's kingship? A king who's been shamed, literally exposed, his clothing ripped off of him. I mean, that's just hard to imagine, right? We, we tend in our movies and our Hollywood depictions, dignify it a bit. It's not dignified. The naked, exposed Jesus being beaten and bloodied while people spit and hit. I'm sure Jesus cried out in pain. And yet as bloody and nasty and gory as that image is, is a perfect representation of an invisible truth. Jesus is the king to whom all will bow. At the present, they were bowing in mock worship. But there's going to be a day that Romans, Chinese, Russians, Americans, Texans, Canadians will all bow before the king. The soldiers don't know it, but they're doing the right actions. They're crowning the right king. They're saying the right words. They may not have the right motivation. They may not have a heart of worship, but they are doing exactly what is true. Jesus is 
king of the Jews. They make a crown for him out of thorns. Why thorns? This is, this is beautiful. Why thorns? I mean, why not put a fake crown on him? Why, why make a crown of thorns? Well, from their perspective, because it hurts. But from God's perspective, we see in this moment, in the praetorium, Jesus taking on all the consequences of the fall. When Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit, two things happened. They were shamefully naked and there were thorns. Jesus takes them both. My friends, Jesus is the king who bears the curse for us. He's the king because he's the only one who can bear the curse. He's the king because he takes the thorns. He's the king because he takes the snake bite to the heel. He's the king because he takes humanity's sinful, shameful nakedness on himself. Everything that Genesis 3 describes for Adam and Eve in this painful punishment for sin is wrapped up in the second Adam, Jesus. He takes the thorns so that he could bring fruit. He gives himself up to having his clothing ripped off and being shamefully naked in front of 600 soldiers so that we could be clothed in the righteousness of God. My friends, do you just feel that? My, you, you have tasted of the curse. Any of you that have ever been to a graveyard, any of you that have ever been to a funeral, any of you that have ever tasted of cancer, the bitterness of cancer, any of you that have ever had to sit there in loneliness, any of you that have ever been made fun of, any of you that have ever been mistreated. My friends, Jesus swallowed that infinitely more than you could ever imagine so that you could have his life. He's the king who wears the crown of thorns because he's the king who bears the curse. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Are your hearts stirred up to worship, to adoration, to thanksgiving? That all the bad stuff of the world, all the effects of the fall, everything poured out on him at this moment so that you could have the everlasting, unceasing, unending kindness of God. What a beautiful savior we have. My friends, he drank the cup of wrath, gave his back to the torment, and wore the thorns as a display that he is the king above every king. He does what no other king can do. Caesar, try as he might, could not reverse the fall. Solomon built gardens, I think somewhat imaging his hope that he could bring back Eden to Jerusalem. Didn't happen. Every president you could ever name cannot reverse the fall. There is only one king who bears the curse and takes it away. Only one. And he just so happens to be the king we speak the least of. 
the king we tend to forget to put our trust in. When some new flashy king walks by with a flashy crown, with a big, hefty, powerful scepter, that's the king that we want. And we tend to forget about the king who wore the crown of thorns. Jesus is not a pragmatic politician. Jesus is not a sword-wielding Roman governor. And he's not a president who's going to make America first. He's a president that died first so that you could live. Anyone you ever could put your hope in cannot reverse your fall. But Jesus did. In his death, in his nakedness, in his bearing the crown of thorns, we have life that no one else can give. Do you hear how much joy that should bring us? Even now, despite what kings might be there, presidents might be there, politicians might be there, whoever it is, we don't have to stress about what they can and cannot bring because guess what? None of them are going to be able to bring anything to you that Jesus hasn't already won in his blood. And if they offer it, they're going to disappoint you greatly. So, he is the king who silently suffers. He is the king who substitutes himself for guilty sinners. And he is the king who wears the curse so that we could have reconciliation with God. What does that have to do with you? First, it should stir up your adoration for him. What ails you? Discouragement, depression, frustration, anger. Have you meditated lately on the thought that Jesus suffered so that you could live? The gospel is the medicine, the cure all. Meditate deeply on what it means to have someone who substituted himself for you. Second, it should motivate us to suffer as he did. This weekend, I got to sit on the back porch with a man who knows he's going to die. It's a matter of days. The doctors try as they might have been unable to get the oxygen that he needs into his blood. He is slowly but surely suffocating until he'll finally stop breathing. I came to that house totally expecting to see this man who was distraught. I don't know how I would feel if I was told that I was going to die within the week, maybe within the month. And I saw this man napping on his back porch. Woke him up. We start talking. He's enjoying the breeze. He's listening to the birds chirp. He's watching the clouds go lazily by. He holds the hand of his wife to whom he's been married for 45 years. And he waits for death to come like a friend. Why? Because that's what death is now for him. Death has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory. We can now be told that we are going to die and sit on the back porch and breathe happily of the air of the gospel. My friends, Jesus died to show us how to suffer well. Jesus died for your sins to bring you forgiveness, but he died leaving you an example. 1 Peter 2.21 You can face suffering silently. You can face suffering 
with a redemptive outlook, knowing that God is sovereign over it all and putting your trust in him who judges justly. All because of what Jesus has done for you. Finally, I think if this suffering king means anything to us, then we'll speak about him. My friends, I'm not telling you to go out and bomb the, the neighborhoods with tracks or that you become some kind of weirdo that just every time you open up your mouth, your neighbor wants to talk about your fence. And now you're just derailing any conversation. I'm talking about the fact that you put Jesus first and foremost in your heart. And that is a natural overflow that they just kind of see the joy, but then they also hear the words that in these conversations that you're having, it does loop back to Jesus at some point because it matters because his Blood was precious because what he did for you was great. Can't tell you how many times I've gotten to sit on back porches and around fire pits talking with guys that didn't know Jesus. And just there, right in front of me, is an opportunity to be able to connect the joy that we have in Christ. To be able to be asked questions. For, for someone to say, you know, I've been raised in church my whole life. It all seems like they're hypocrites. I've been hurt. I've been wounded. And then to point him to the Jesus who sat with the Samaritan woman to say, I'm sorry, you've not seen a clear representation. Let me show you who he is. A month, six months, a year goes by. Slowly but surely, their flawed image of Jesus begins to wane. And then you hear words like, well, if there is a Jesus, I hope he's like the Jesus that you've described. My friends, build relationships and speak about the Jesus who died for you. You talk about a lot. You're passionate about the lo a lot. You put yard signs out about a lot of things. We sign petitions we join Facebook groups. We do all kinds of things. We wear t-shirts of whatever. Don't let your mouth be silent about the king who suffered for you. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that in this time, God, that you will glorify yourself. Father, thank you for sending the king to suffer for us. God, I pray that as we worship Jesus, and as we think deeply about the gospel, as we think deeply about his time of suffering in Pilate's Praetorium, Lord, that we will see that he is the king who is our suffering servant. He is the king who is our substitutionary sacrifice. And he is the king who carries our curse. And one day, Father, he will be the king to whom all eyes will see and to whom all knees will bow. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.